Listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. Rarely does a day go by that some event in the Middle East is not above the fold headline, and today is no exception. For this reason, I'm particularly pleased to welcome Stephen Cook to this Global IQ Minute. Dr. Cook, a senior fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, is considered one of the country's most astute experts on Arab and Turkish politics. He's the author of the recently published book, False Dawn, Protest, Democracy, and Violence in the New Middle East. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Just today, five Arab nations. Saudi Arabia, Egypt, UAE, Bahrain, and Yemen broke off relations with Qatar, where the United States has a major Navy base as well as other assets. Going even farther than severing diplomatic ties, the borders are now closed. Was this a surprise? This is a conflict that has actually been brewing for some time. It settled down a bit after King Salman came to power after the death of King Abdullah in January 2015 in Saudi Arabia, but actually I think it's the Emiratis most who are driving this rift. They claim with some evidence that the Qataris are playing both sides of the fence on the Iran issue. I think that the Qataris look at Iran in a different way. They see Iran as a problem to be managed rather than a problem that these small countries can successfully confront and effectively roll back. The Emiratis and the Saudis do not trust the Qataris when it comes to the support of Islamist groups, in particular the Muslim Brotherhood. And there's a fair amount of evidence that the Qataris have supported the Muslim Brotherhood and its Palestine offshoot Hamas. These are things that have been present in the relationship among these countries for some time, and the rift has been widening over the course of the last few months. Do you think the Trump administration was aware that this action was going to take place? Was it coordinated with us in any way? It's hard to imagine that it was coordinated with the United States, given the enormous importance of the Al-Udaid air base that's located in, in Qatar, from which the U.S. Central Command, which is the command that is responsible for the entirety of the Middle East and, and part of Asia, has run the wars in Afghanistan, and that's the forward operating base for Central Command and the place from which the fight against the Islamic State is being run. Qatar is actually rather important to the United States, and this is an enormous complication for the United States. How can you have a coalition of countries fighting the Islamic State if those countries aren't talking to each other, if their military officers can't visit the other countries? It is a problem. Thus far, the United States has said that it hopes this rift isn't a permanent one. I think that's a mild understatement. But it's one that is deepening and widening every day. One of the things I was reading today was that Qatar receives, imports a lot of its food and other items, commodities from Saudi Arabia. So this can't last too long or it could be very serious. It can't last too long. The Qataris will hang tough for a bit, no doubt. The way in which they have framed this issue is that the Saudis are essentially trying to take over the Qatari state. And the prime directive of Qatari foreign policy has been to remain independent of Saudi 
right? And when they say take over the Qatari state, they don't necessarily mean that the Saudis would invade and take over Qatar, but the small Gulf states are in many ways beholden to the Saudis. The Emiratis are, are somewhat different. They're a power in their own right, but they are the junior partner to the Saudis. Bahrain is a wholly owned subsidiary of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. The Qataris don't want to be that. And so they'll hang tough. One can expect that Al Jazeera will be very tough on the Saudis and the Qataris will reach out to the Iranians. The Iranians will seek to exploit this rift. There's a strong relationship between Turkey and Qatar. So the Qataris do have some options. Well, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states are probably feeling their oats now after President Trump's visit. And really wanted to ask you, does what President Trump expressed in Saudi Arabia, is it a, a marked change in U.S. policy or is it just more Trumpian bluster following President Obama's policies? I think it's a terrific question. The president's style and his words were a marked change from President Obama's style and President Obama's words. I think that the president went to Riyadh and mouthed a lot of the words that the Saudis and their partners have been wanting to hear for the better part of the last decade. In fact, when you look at the policies, it's not that dramatic a departure from the Obama years. There's still going to be an effort to counter violent extremism, just as President Obama kicked off. There is going to be an effort to gain control over terrorist financing, something that the Obama team did vigorously, picking up from their predecessors. As President Trump was getting on the airplane to fly to Riyadh, his administration certified that the Iranians were upholding their end of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, otherwise known as the Iran nuclear deal, and thus sanctions waivers were certified. That's not that different from the Obama team. I think rhetorically, it's notable that President Trump said, we are no longer interested in the character of your regimes. Human rights, democratization, reform is clearly no longer on the U.S. agenda. Now, in fairness, when President Obama visited Cairo and gave his big A New Beginning speech in June 2009, he said there were 10 priorities for the United States and the Muslim world, and number seven was democracy and change. And he specifically said, if you want to become democracies, we'll help you, but we won't push it. That's not that's different. He, it's yeah. not that different. Let's talk a little bit about the Arab Spring and, and your new book, False Dawn. Your book focuses on the reasons why the Arab uprisings failed. What I want to know is, were we caught off guard when the revolutions, the Arab Spring, or what I now call the Arab blizzard started? <laughs> That's great. I like that. The I, Arab admit, I lived in Tunisia as a child. So, Did you? Uh, yeah. What a beautiful country. Oh, it's a great country. Oh, absolutely stunning, and the people are terrific. First, let me just say that I don't consider these uprisings to have been actual revolutions, and that's a, a big part of the book. But I think the nature of popular movements or these explosions of anger or people power or revolutions are by their very nature unpredictable. So I think that there was, if you asked analysts of the region, both inside and outside the government, and I actually spent a lot of time talking about this in the first chapter of the book, people understood that there were problems in the region, that all was not well. But at the same time, there was this sense that the dominant trend going forward was going to be political stability. So in that sense, despite understanding so much about the political dynamics in the region, there was still an expectation that authoritarian leaders would muddle through. You know, we have just a few more minutes, and I want to ask you a question that is always debated at academic conferences, whether the Middle East Institute or elsewhere, and that is, is there something inherently unique about Islam or the Arab world that makes it impossible for democracy to, to take root? My answer to that is emphatically no. 
clearly there are millions of people in the Arab and Muslim world who want to live in more democratic and open societies. Take the two largest Muslim societies on earth, Indonesia and India. Those are both democratic societies. This is something that I've been, I've been mulling in my head and may be a topic of the next book, is looking at the kind of authoritarian cultures that the big Arab states in the region produce. That's to say that it really doesn't have anything to do with Arab culture or Islam, but it has something to do with authoritarianism itself and the big Arab states that were created in the 1950s that create this political culture of dependence and authoritarianism. I haven't yet really figured it out in my head, but as I've presented this book, it's just out a few days, but as I've presented it, this question keeps coming back. People keep asking me, is there something cultural? So something in the culture of maybe Tunisia, the, uh, Egypt? Libya, Turkey, that inhibits the democratic development? Maybe, but I don't think it has to do with their religion. Last question, Turkey. You're known as a scholar and a specialist on Turkey. What can we expect to happen there now after this constitutional referendum? Oh, I think it's, it's clear that Turkey's trajectory is authoritarian and unstable. What do we do when we're in this position right now where we're supporting the Syrian Kurds? This is the problem that has seized American foreign policy when it comes to Syria. That is that we are allied, the United States is allied with Turkey's sworn enemies. Turkey is a NATO ally. In ways, this is a choice that the Turks have made for us. When in 2014, President Obama looked for allies on the ground to fight against the Islamic State, the Turks demurred for a number of reasons. The Kurds raised their hands, and they've proven to be effective partners of the United States, laying bare the hollowness of U.S.-Turkey relations in the last, I'd say, 25 years. We first thought that Turkey would be a pivotal actor in Central Asia. This is post-Cold War. Didn't work out that way. Then in the aftermath of the Arab uprisings, Turkey was the model for the Arab world. Didn't quite work out that way. There's not a lot that binds the two countries together other than that history of standing shoulder to shoulder during the Cold War. At this point, the relationship is based on American access to Indrilik Air Base, which is close to the fight against the Islamic State. Beyond that, relationship is extraordinarily tense. Our guest today has been Dr. Stephen Cook. He's a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and the author of a new book, False Dawn, Protest, Democracy, and Violence in the New Middle East. I hope you'll enjoy reading it as much as I have. Well, I, I hope so, and thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.